Timothy. Um, Paul has been writing, he's written this letter. It's not really a long letter. He's written it to Timothy, his son in the faith. He's written it to him because he uh, is known as a timid Timothy. He's a young man, and he's been left as a sheep among wolves. He's been uh, left in a huge city that has one church. There's not a bunch of them down the block. He's the only one. And yet um, God is building this faithful uh, track of believers there. And it's interesting what he writes to him in the book of Acts chapter 20, because Paul, writing to, or excuse me, speaking to Timothy and the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, had this to say. He, he went to them, he called together a, a leader, excuse me, a, a, basically a leader's meeting. And he said, hey guys, I don't know when I'm going to be coming back, but I'm leaving Timothy in charge. And here's some things that I want to charge you with. Here's some things I want to transmit to you. I want to send an order to you. And so in Acts chapter 20, he says, uh, he says in verse 17, he, it was, he was there from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from the house, excuse me, from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that would happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit is testifying in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count myself dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned or I have not avoided to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's how precious the, the church of God is to Jesus. He purchased it with his own blood. It cost him everything. And so he says, shepherd this church. And then he says, here's the reason why. Verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, meaning people within the church, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. People in the church are meant to be built up in the word of God. And so Paul saw it as his main thrust to not help them avoid trials and temptations and false teachers, but instead to equip them to deal with them when they came. Not if they came, but when they came. And so as he's writing to Timothy back here in 1 Timothy, he starts his epistle by writing that he's an apostle of Jesus. 
by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope, is what he says. Our hope is not in circumstances being ideal. Our hope is not in, in all the money being there. Our hope is not in the perfect job or in the perfect relationship or for Timothy being a young minister. Our hope is not in numbers, the amount of people that come to church. Our hope is not in having the perfect facilities. Our hope is not in no one ever letting you down, because they will. He says our hope is Jesus Christ. And as a minister himself, Paul goes, I've struggled through these things, and I want you to know that Jesus Christ is our hope. And he will not disappoint, is what he wrote in Romans chapter 5. So he says to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to think about something just as an aside. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the gospel writers write about their testimony about Jesus, I, I just kind of fingered through the, this morning and was thumbing through each gospel, and I had heard this said, but I wanted to test it. Every time they mention Jesus, they just say his name, Jesus, Yeshua. They never call him Christ Jesus. They always write about him as Jesus. But when you read in the book of Acts, Paul, uh, Peter preaching all the way through these letters that Paul writes, he's called either Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus mentioning the fact that, and by the way, Christ isn't his last name. It's his title. So if someone has a title, you call them Mr. or Doctor or whatever their title might be, his title is Christ. Christ Jesus. Mashiach in the Hebrew. It means the Messiah, the, the chosen, the anointed one. And so he's speaking of a specific office. And so when he calls him Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ our Lord, he's referring to him as the Messiah. And then as Lord, he's referring to him as not only the Savior, but also Master or Leader or whatever you want to put in there. My King. In that day, they would call their King their Lord, the one who is in charge of leading their life. And so he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia... He said, I urged you to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And we, we covered that last week, but I wanted to pull out two words for you. Charge, when I was in scouts, we had, I'm an Eagle Scout, and so in the, in the award ceremony, they had a time for a charge. And the word charge there means to transmit a message and send an order. So if someone would send you your charges and you're in the army or something like that, they would charge you, they would send your order, they would transmit it from the top echelon of the army, they would take your orders and they would send it through the ranks till it got to you and you would receive your orders from the commanding officer. And so Paul, when he's charging them, when he's ordering Timothy, he's not doing it because Paul is the high-ranking officer. He's received his charges, his orders, and he's sending them to Timothy, who is a foot soldier at this time. Pastors are not the leader. They are under leaders, if that, if that makes any sense. They're, they're like middle management. Middle management, they usually kind of throw their weight around, but they only can do that because they're under the authority of the owner or the president or the leader. And so... Paul is going, look, I, I charge you, he says, that they teach no other doctrine. I charge some. 
he says, you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So Timothy, your orders come down from me, and my orders come down from Jesus, and Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So you can have confidence that this isn't something you came up with. You're not throwing your weight around. You're not trying to just bully people into obeying the Lord. You're using God's authority in your life that he's given you. So be confident in that. He says, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Heed, that word means to, um, to hold to, to turn to, and to give attention to. So to take heed to other doctrines or other teachings means to hold to them, it means to turn to them, and it means to give attention to them. And he tells Timothy, don't give attention to it, don't even listen. Someone's teaching you something that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't even listen to it. Don't even listen. Don't give an ear to it. You know, and you've probably had your children, if you have kids, come home and say, so-and-so said this and this to me. Well, that's not true. And number two, stop listening to them. Who cares what they said? Haters gonna hate. You know, that kind of idea. You know, now sometimes God sends you friends that are gonna say things that seem hateful, but they're true and you need to listen. But in this case, he says, don't give heed to it. Don't give attention to it. Don't even justify it with a response. Sometimes we justify things. We, we even give heed to things that are not true at all, and we spend all of our time focusing in on it. He says, don't even listen to that. Walk away. You, know, you ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? Break the wrist and walk away. Some of you won't get that. That's okay. So then he says, um, don't give heed to these things which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Don't give heed to them. Don't give heed to myths, speeches, or stories. Now think about this. He says, don't give heed to genealogies. What does that mean? You know, aren't we supposed to read the genealogies? They're in the Bible. We just got through them in the last year. Well, genealogies is something that Paul used to take a lot of stock in. Remember, he's having to battle against these Jewish religious leaders. These Jewish religious leaders think that there's something because their so-and-so's son, who is the son of so-and-so, can trace his lineage all the way to whatever. Kind of like every Scottish or Irish or whatever it is guy that can take his lineage down to William Wallace. Like, hey, that's my people. Freedom! You know, and it's like there's, what does that even mean? My grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was William Wallace. Big deal. You're a geek. You know, like... That doesn't give you anything. That doesn't give you authority. That it, you're just his offspring. All that means is you got his last name, if anything. And every, most of the people that can trace their lineage back to him, that's not real anyway. I don't even know if he's a real character, is he? Anyway, so endless genealogies. We get all stirred up about, you know, I, I'm the, and we live in a small town, right? How many people's identity are in who their parents are? Or Aaron Strange back there probably can never hear, end, hear the end of Carlot's stories. I'm sorry, that's probably all my fault, but, you know, like, his name's Strange, and so they're like, oh, are you related? You know, if they don't know, but everybody knows. So in many ways, he can't escape that. Not that that's a bad thing. I like his dad. But my point is, like, it, we all identify with whose we are, who we were born into, you know? And, and there are many of us that, that would like to escape that. And there are many of us that don't care. You know, whatever your, your flavor is. But uh, 
He says, uh, these things don't really end up on anything. They're wasteful. And Paul's going to end up saying, he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 through 7, um, he, he writes about his genealogy. He says, but I count it to me as nothing. It doesn't mean anything anymore. We'll get to there later. But in, the, in verse 5, he said this, the purpose of this commandment, this charge, this order that he's given them, not to take heed to these things, the purpose of it really is to keep them from the things that will distract them from the main thing, which the main thing, he says, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. When you focus on all these other exterior issues about whose you were born into and, and uh, genealogies, but also you know, myths and speeches and stories, you kind of end up missing what actually matters in life. Instead of becoming better at loving people, you become better at measuring yourself against them or measuring them against you. And so the fruit of this commandment is for them and for you, Timothy, to love from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a faith without wax, faith that has been tested and approved. And the idea of a sincere faith, that's a Greek word that means without wax. And that means nothing to us because we don't live in their day and age, but they would have these shops that would sell these sculptures. And on the sculpture that would take months and sometimes years to make, it would be made out of stone. And they would take a chisel and they would just little by little, they'd make a masterpiece. And sometimes they would get just about done and they'd be doing the finishing touches on the nose and all of a sudden, bam, it falls off. And they've lost two years of work. Now what do we do? Well, the, the right thing to do would be to start over. And the wrong thing to do would be to do what most of them would do, and that's you'd melt some wax, and you'd put it where the nose was, and you'd sculpt it, and you'd make it just right, and, and then you'd just put some shellac or whatever the, over the top. You'd paint the sculpture, and then you would sell it. Well, here's the problem with those guys. They were like the ones that sell, um, uh, what, what are the bags that everybody buys, the you know, the, the knockoffs. You know, you have the ones that sell, what are the, I used to, okay, so we went to Washington, D.C. one time, we bought these sunglasses. They were not Oakleys, they were Okies. <laughs> but they put the letters really close together, so you're like, hey, I got Oakleys, which are like, what, $200 sunglasses, which you wear only when it's sunny out. Or you can get a set of Okies, and you don't care because they cost you 10 bucks. And everybody had them, they all knew, like nobody can afford those. Well, essentially, when you'd buy this sculpture, you'd be buying an oaky. Uh, you would buy, be buying something with wax, which is no problem because nobody knows the difference, right? Until you set it in your window and the sun comes out and everybody's over at your house and all of a sudden the nose falls off right in front of everybody and you're like, oh my goodness, that's embarrassing. They know now that I only paid 10 bucks for it. You know, and so, um, but the shops that would sell the statues that would have, without wax, they would actually get that signature or that certification over their shop building. It would say, certified without wax, certified sincere sculpture. And that's, that's pretty amazing. So God doesn't want us to have faith that hasn't been tested. And no doubt the sun beating down on that sculpture would be a sculpture that would be tested, right? And our faith is that masterpiece Paul wrote about in earlier epistles where he said that God is making in you a poema, a masterpiece. 
and he wants to show you off to the world. You're his trophy. But it has to be tested. And so he says, the purpose of this commandment is that you wouldn't trust in genealogies. You wouldn't trust in myths and stories, but your faith would be your own and it would be sincere and it would come from a true, pure conscience before the Lord. So, but the consequences to giving heed to, to turning to, to holding to, to giving attention to these false doctrines is that they lead to a division within the church over doubtful issues. They lead to idle, foolish talk, endless, wasted conversations. Who loves those? I don't. I don't have time for foolish conversations. And then it leads to confusion instead of understanding. And if there's one le- thing that we need less of in the body of Christ, it's confusion about salvation, confusion about a godly life. So here's my question for you. I, I've struggled with this for the last couple of years. Why does Paul spend so much time harping on this issue of legalism and trusting in our works for salvation and genealogies? And what, what's the big deal about legalism? At least that person who's legalistic is going to be very strong and they're going to be doing all that they can to at least look like they're godly. Doesn't that have a positive influence on culture? It looks like it. But here's the problem with legalism. It's cancer, but it doesn't look like cancer. If you have cancer and it looks like cancer, we can treat you right away. If you have cancer that doesn't look like cancer, what happens is they find out when it's stage four and it's too late. So in the, bo- in the body of Christ and in the believer, legalism, and it's something as simple as salvation by the things that you can do to get brownie po- points with God, it's not just a little thing. It's cancer that doesn't look like it. And if you don't know you have cancer, you won't go to the doctor and you won't be saved from it. Cancer in the Christian life sends people to hell. And Paul says this because he was that person. Paul was a legalistic Jewish man who was persecuting Christians because they said that they could be saved by believing in Jesus alone. And he said, no, you have to be circumcised You have to follow the law. You have to practice the feast. You have to make sacrifices on the altar at the certain times of year. And then, if you're just right, you can be saved. And and what Paul's going to say is that that was never the point of the law. The point of the law was never to save anybody. And so, Paul says, for example, the law, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. Jesus said this. He said, I did not come to bring the righteous to salvation, but I came to save sinners. Those who are sick don't need a doctor. Those who are sick need a Excuse me. Did I say that right? Those who are righteous don't need salvation, meaning in their own eyes. But those who know that they're not righteous They are the ones that uh, Christ came for. He says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, 
for those who would bear false witness in court, perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This is really good news. This is amazing news. The law was made for sinners. And I'm not talking about the guy that lies on his taxes. I'm talking about the guy that killed all the people in Parkland, Florida. The law was made for him. The law was made for the liar. The law was made for the child molester. The law was made for the people that you think God can't save because they've gone too far. But then the law was also made for those who are self-righteous, who go to church every week and have never embraced that Jesus alone, believing in him, is enough. You can't add a thing to your salvation. So he goes through this list, and if you met these people, some of you, many of you, would be like, I don't want to hang around them. I don't want my kids to be around them. But the law was for them so that they might see themselves, as James calls the law, a mirror. We have mirrors in our houses to see what we really look like, not what our spouse will lie to us and say that we look like. Does this dress make me look fat? Don't ask me that. Go ask the mirror, because the mirror is not going to lie, even lovingly. The mirror is going to show you what you look like. The law doesn't lie, and it wasn't made to save anybody. It was made to reveal to sinners that if they don't get right with Jesus, they will go to hell. And they deserve death, the punishment that Jesus took for us. So verse 12. Well, let me not skip ahead. Let's look at my notes here. I have some things in here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul has already written on this and so I'll just let him speak. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have been given, excuse me, could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. What does Romans say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Now, if you notice back up there in verse 19, it says it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. And in many of your Bibles, seed there is capitalized. And that was the seed of the woman spoken of in Galatians chapter 3 after the fall. The seed of the woman would come and he would have his heel bruised by the head of the serpent. In other words, he's going to stomp on Satan's head and put him under, but not before he was bruised by Satan. He was battered and bruised for our transgressions, but Satan lost the battle. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Isn't that interesting? 
someone's struggling in school, what do we do? We, we give them more attention. And if the parents can't help, they try to get somebody that's you, taking the class or just took the class recently, or sometimes a teacher steps in and gives them one-on-one attention, they tutor them. They tutor them to bring them along up to speed of the class. The law is our tutor, or some of the older translations say the school marm, to bring people to the understanding that they need a savior. The law reveals to us that we need salvation. And so I love that because Paul's already written on it. But then he says in verse 12, and back in 1 Timothy 1, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Well, why wouldn't he be happy about that? Okay, that's just a given, right? Paul's a pretty great guy. Except he gives a little bit of his testimony here. He says, that list right there, that law affected me. He says, although, verse 13, he's got a real perspective on himself. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent man. And if you read uh, the account there in Acts where Paul is there holding the, the cloak of a man who stoned the first martyr of the church, Stephen, you see that Paul was an insolent man. He would listen to nobody. So he says, I was formerly these things, but I obtained mercy because it, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, he says, I am the chief. He came to save sinners, and Paul says, and I'm number one. And he's going to go on to say here, however, that's a big but, essentially, but for this reason I obtain mercy. I obtained mercy because I was the chief of sinners. I obtained God's favor, his mercy, because I needed it. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all patience or long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Jesus saved me because he knew that when anyone else would hear my testimony or would have known me before Christ and, and now knows me after being saved, they would recognize that if Jesus can save that guy, he can save anybody. Because Paul was a zealous man. Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you will not be saved. Which to them was an affront because they believed that those were the most holy and close to God people that existed. Well, if they can't be saved, who can and Jesus was trying to stir up in them the idea that righteousness doesn't look like what they think it does. Righteousness doesn't look like that at all. It looks like us trusting in God for our works rather than, or for our salvation, rather than entrusting our own outward behavior, if you will. And so he says there, I'm the chief. And then he kind of goes off into this, what we would call in high church circles would be called a benediction. He gets so excited about this very fact that he just goes, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
He just gets so excited that he just has to praise God in this letter even. He's writing and it's just like, I, I wonder if his handwriting all of a sudden just got really sporadic. You know, um, we received a card the, a, a couple weeks ago from, from all of you guys as, as a church, but Miss Dana wrote down in the card some things and, and at the very end it kind of got scribbly and she goes, well, I, when I get excited and I'm writing, all of a sudden the words kind of get sporadic because I'm trying to get them out quick enough. You know, and, and I think Paul was at this point, he was, you know, oftentimes people go, well, God's kind of, he's a downer, and he's kind of mean, and, you know, look at the God of the Old Testament, and, you know, look at these gospel writers, and, and all these Christians, they're just self-righteous. Paul was kind of hardcore, and makes me just feel bad about myself, and what, what I want to point out is that Paul was excited about the gospel because he was a recipient of the gospel. Paul, Paul wrote these things because he was passionate because he knew how much it had changed his life. So when we read this part here, he's not down on himself. If anything, he's just, I was nothing and God was everything and he saved me anyway. And I wasn't just like not good. I was against him. I was serving against him. So the law is useful, but once we repent and believe the law has been fulfilled for us, by Jesus, by faith, we receive his righteousness. And he takes our bank account, which before Christ is completely bankrupt. File 13, chapter 9, whatever the thing is, it was worse than all of that. Bankrupt as far as righteousness is concerned. And at salvation, Jesus deposits, he imputes to our account everything that he is, his righteousness. And now we get to follow Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, says this. That's not where, that can't be right. First John chapter 5, verse 1. There we go. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The disciples asked Jesus, they said, how may we work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, believe in the one whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. So, the whole point of this passage is to draw people's attention away from the things that don't matter and point them towards the ones that do matter. And so let me ask you this question, and I asked myself this question this week. What gets your focus? The things in life that are debatable or the things in life that are definite? And I wrote some things down here. If we spend our time disputing and concerning ourselves with debatable matters, uh, we'll miss the things that matter more to God and to us in the long term. A major thing that we neglect if we are to focus on our works to prove ourselves to God is we will actually while spending all the time on our outward actions, we will neglect our purity of heart. 
And so what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 here says is, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So let me ask you this morning, how is your heart? How is your heart? Um, Don't ignore the eternal because you're busy with the temporary. The eternal is what will always remain. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Do I spend more time concerned with the temporary or with the eternal? And am I doing my part to prepare myself and my family for eternity or this short life? I would submit to you that many of us struggle with that. I'd submit to you that we all do. We live in this life, and the things that draw our attention away from Christ, many times are the things that he's given us, we've prayed for, but we start to worship the gift instead of the giver of the gift. And so we neglect the thing that will last forever. I am praying about this because I watch way too many people spend their entire lives preparing their children, even, for the temporary things, but neglecting completely the things that will last for eternity. You know, I want my children to be successful. I want our family to be successful, but I don't want them to go to hell. I want them more so to be uh, in Christ than I want them to be successful. I don't care if they're waiting tables at McDonald's. I don't care if they're sweeping floors. If they don't know Christ, none of it matters anyway. And so... um, Just a devotional thought for the week. So, Paul has said, take it from someone who knows. And in verse 12 through 16, I already read it, but I want to go through my notes here. Paul gives his testimony. He went from CEO, in other words, the chief executive officer in his life. He went from the chief financial officer in his life, all the way to COS. Chief of sinners. Paul uses himself as an example. According to the law, he says, I was not qualified to serve God. According to God's mercy in Jesus, he qualified me. So if you are here today and you're like, I'm not qualified to serve God in any form or fashion, you couldn't be in and of yourselves. But because you are in Christ, he's the one who makes you qualified. I'm not qualified to be up here. But I am qualified because it's God who called me. He knew he was a sinner because of the law, and therefore he needed salvation through Jesus. Only sinners can obtain mercy, and Paul saved by God as an example of what Jesus Christ can really do. So, the first part of the chapter was don't fight over things that don't matter. The second part of the chapter is do fight for the things that do matter. There is not to be absolutely no fighting. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword to divide between the godly and the ungodly. And sometimes he said that'll happen in your families, it'll happen in your relationships. Uh, More than anything, he wants it to happen in your heart. So don't fight over fables and genealogies. These will lead to fights and disputes that don't matter, but do fight for what does matter, the good warfare. So in verse 18, he says, this charge, there's that word again, this order, this message I want to convey to you, I commit to you, son Timothy. Again, reminding him how much he cares about him. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwrecked. So, if all of us today were to make a commitment, I'm going to fight the good fight. 
I'm going to live life for what matters. I'm going to avoid the things that don't matter, or at least put them to the priority level they truly need to be. Here's the reality. There will be some who will receive it, who will commit their lives to do that. There will be some who will kind of be on the fence and they'll struggle with it. And there will be others that will completely reject it. And because of that, as far as faith is concerned, they will suffer shipwreck. Shipwreck. And he lists two people that did, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, to reject the Holy Spirit. And so he says, fight for the things that matter. Do fight for what does matter. And if you do, you'll have a clear conscience. You'll be able to sleep at night. Now, some people would argue with me about that, and I'm okay with that, because some people have some stuff going on they can't sleep at night. My wife and I talk about this all the time. There's nights where she cannot go to sleep. But if I'm horizontal, my head's on the pillow, I don't care what happened that day, I'm sleeping. Maybe that needs to change about me. Maybe I need to, you know, think about things a little bit more, and then I'll, you know, won't be able to sleep, then I can pray some more. But my point is, I, I get that there are physical reasons why some people can't sleep. But a clear conscience definitely aids the sleep a little bit, I think. Um, but also, fighting for the things that matter takes faith because it causes us to have to fight for some things that might hurt some people's feelings. There have been conversations that I've had to have in the past that caused me to absolutely lose sleep, uh, to lose my indigestion, what, indigestion, to cause indigestion, because I care about those people. But having the good conversations to affect people or for eternity matters enough to me. And so while I don't like it, I still have those conversations. But also know that some that you talk to, some that you share your faith with, will completely reject sound teaching. Teach it anyway. Speak the truth in love, even if you don't think it'll be received, because it's worth it. Somebody might listen, and it may not be the person you're talking to. So have those conversations. Some need to be given over to the lifestyle they choose. Notice here it says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Those that reject sound teaching many times do so to their detriment. That doesn't mean you have to stick around. Teach them what they need to hear, and if they reject it enough times, don't cast your pearls before swine. Give them over to the thing that they want the most, and when they do, they're get, being given over to Satan. Let Satan have them. He's going to use them. He's going to beat them up. He's going to give them over to their desires and their lusts. And the hope is that they'll see the fruit of that. It will destroy their life, and then they'll come back. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The dad is really like God the father. The son came to the father, and he said what? He said, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait. And the father said, here you go. I love you. He knew his son. He knew his son was going to go and waste it. He gave it to him anyway. Now, that's a hard thing, right? Because we all want to protect our children. Sometimes we're protecting them from coming to Jesus because we keep trying to isolate them from the consequences of their sin. Sometimes it's wise to give them over to their sin, let it destroy them so they can come back humbled. Humility comes through humiliation many times. And so the prodigal son lets him go. The son goes out, wastes it, parties, 
lives it up, and by the end of the story, where is the son found? He's broke, he's beat down, he's found himself a job. Hey, cool, he finally got a job. What is that job? It's feeding hogs. This is a Jewish man, that's like the least thing you can do, because they weren't even supposed to be around pigs. And at this point, he's sitting there at the feed trough of the hogs. He has no food of himself. He's feeding them sort of some sort of pods. I don't think they were Tide Pods. These pigs are eating pods, the waste. And as they're doing that, he looks down at the trough and goes, that looks pretty good. I'm kind of hungry. And in that moment, it makes sense. He goes, you know, at least my servants live better than I do right now. At the very least, I could go back and beg for a job from my dad. He goes back, and before he even gets there to ask for a job from his dad, his dad comes running because his dad is Jesus. He comes running and he says, please forgive me. And he just gets down on his knees and he begs him, he hugs him, he says, dad, just, and his dad says, hey, enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm just glad you're home. I'm glad you're here. He forgives him. He kills the fatted calf. They have a celebration. That's God the Father. Sometimes we have to give those in our life who are rejecting Christ over to their own consequences until they get beat up enough to see the consequences that are their own fault. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So, prodigals, brokenhearted, but forgivable. So let's pray.